You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 179, Troy Greenwood and his Midlife Awakening. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins, and it is my joy and privilege to be here with you. Thank you so much for downloading, for listening. I hope that this conversation today will uh, not only just stir your soul, but open you to maybe what God is doing in your life today. So today our guest is uh, Troy Greenwood. He's the co-founder of Graceful Cafe and Foundation. He's going to tell us what that means. I was just there yesterday, spent a couple hours with a friend, uh, had some breakfast, and uh, it is become it has become one of my most um, most favorite places in my little town. So I'm, I can't wait to share with you what Troy and uh, the crew and his wife there are doing. So Troy, welcome to Halfway There. I love what you're doing over there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and Graceful Cafe. Um, and then after that, we'll go back and we'll kind of explore your story and how you got here. Yeah. So three and a half years ago, so May of 2016, my wife and I um, opened a community cafe called Graceful um, Cafe and, and with an associate nonprofit called Graceful Foundation. And one of the fundamental things we believe in is that everyone deserves one good meal a day, regardless of their ability to pay. So we set up Graceful Cafe as a regular restaurant, so S-Corp, um, legal, in legal terms. And then we have a nonprofit called Graceful Foundation. And how that works is when you walk in, you're presented with a menu with prices, and you are able to per- get something from that menu. And then when it comes time to pay, we, we meet you wherever you are in your financial season. So if you're in a season where you have just enough, we ask you pay just what it costs. So a breakfast burrito is $5.00. Um, and lunch is $8 plus uh, whatever you do for a drink. Um, if you're a season where you don't have enough or anything, we, we would love for you to have that meal on us. So our, our foundation, in a sense, pays the cafe for your meal. And then finally, if you're in a season where you have a little extra or abundance, we ask that you pay it forward and pay for someone else's meal. And all those tips and extra goes to our nonprofit foundation for paying for other people's meals. Yeah, which is a really cool idea. Where did you come up with that? I mean, that may be part of your story, so maybe we need to go back and do it. But um, no, I mean that's that's a great question. Um, we we came up with it. I think so. A little bit of our story. We'll get into a lot of this. I know later, but part of our story is my wife, for as long as I've known her, had talked in and out about having a restaurant, and she started her career as a CPA, and then she was a high school teacher. And I didn't really see how those had anything to do with a restaurant. So I don't know that I was that supportive of a husband on this dream. But after um, we got back from Uganda, which we'll get into, um, she came back just really wanting to open this restaurant. And so she started thinking about what it would look like and what some of the, the mission and the vision and the values would be and how that would be organized. And one of the things we came up along the way was this concept of gather, eat, give, of just being truly in community that everyone should get um, one good meal a day. And finally, that how can we create a, a place where we inspire people to give back? And so out of that came some research into community cafes. There's the second one in the nation is here in town, and they've been around, 
I forget, over 10 years. Um, they're called Same Cafe, and there's another one called Cafe 180. And both are beautiful things. And we started to really embrace what that community cafe model could look like. And we came up with a slightly different spin on it, but it's the same concept. Just loving people through food and inviting people into community. Right. Okay. Which is perfect. I think that's exactly what food does anyway, right? It is It creates yes. a community, which is uh, mm-hmm. definitely what's going on over there. Uh, I I just love it. So that thank you. That's really helpful. And um, it's an interesting clientele too. The times I've been over there, right? You have people who, who are coming in and they can't afford it. And uh, you guys are helping them. And I, like for me, it just is a really good way to get outside of my own a bubble of what I think is mm-hmm. important in my life and remember, Hey, I've, I've actually got it pretty good. I've, I've got a roof over my head and uh, I've got a freezer full of food and, and this cup of coffee is kind of a bonus. So mm-hmm. um, that, that is, is kind of how I approach it. Well, let's get into your story. Cause I would love to sure. hear how you got here. Um, mm-hmm. And the good news is you've, you've shared it with me and it's been a little while. So I get to approach it with fresh ears. So, what, what, uh, what did you grow? I can't remember where you grew up and where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. And then was it a Christian family? Yes. So I grew up in Michigan and I was a PK. So my, my ah, dad, yes. dad was a pastor. Right. Uh, so I was a preacher's kid. So I grew up very much a part of a, of really two churches. Cause my dad was at two, two churches while I was growing up. Gotcha. What was, so what was that like? Where was, uh, being a preacher's kid, uh, the horror story we sometimes hear or was it, was it really good no. for you? It was, it was good for me. I, I mean, I, I've, I've heard the same things um, for me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, you know, people often ask about my faith journey and I tell them that I went through f- uh, several phases, but the first phase was my growing up phase being a PK. And I grew up going to church because it was what we did to support my dad. He, it was his job mm. and we supported him. And so like m- many PKs, I think I did every job there is to do at a church. One day I could be the acolyte. One day I could be the, in the nursery. One day I could run the sound system. It just wherever needed he needed me, I was there. Um, and that was just what we did as a family. We supported um, my dad in his in his job. Okay, but so it wasn't really. It doesn't sound very personal to you at the time. No, no, it wasn't. And that's kind of why I kind of say it was kind of you know maybe phase one of my faith journey. The next phase was. Um, I don't know, maybe a rest phase from church. I had kind of feel, felt like, you know, I'd done two Sundays a week for as long as I knew, missing very few. And so I kind of felt like I had checked the church box. And so through college and a little bit after out of college, you know, my wife and I eventually, after we got married after college, um, we didn't we didn't go to church until we moved to Colorado in 2000. Um, around that time was when we started talking about having a family. And I just, I thought, well, if I'm going to have kids, I think when you have, when you start to think about having kids, you, you think about your life a little bit, and what you want to maybe change. And I thought we should add a church community um, as we did that. So again, I, it's still not personal, I'll say. Um, I still went to church, not really for me, but because I was going to have kids and I wanted them to grow up in a church. Interesting. That's how I grew up. Did you so feel? Kind of phase three. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you feel sort of? separated from God or just kind of God was out there. You were holding him at arm's length. Like what was that? What was that like? Um, yeah, that's a great great question. Um, I think, yeah, I would say I didn't have a very personal relationship. I think I was still in that phase of like, this is what I should do. This is how I was raised. And I want to raise my kids in this, 
Um, and it wasn't until I would say, I mean, you know, I call it my, I call it my midlife awakening is what instead of crisis, but it definitely was a crisis. We went through a pretty hard season in our family with a bunch of health things with our younger daughter, our, our, our oldest, she's our daughter. We went through a bunch of health things with her type one diabetes, scoliosis, a loss, loss of my wife's kind of faith mentor. And I would say in this part of our marriage, my wife was farther ahead in her faith journey than I was. But out of that kind of darkness, um, Heather and I, and Heather's my wife's name, we just were really grateful for what we had. And I started to realize that I was, part of the darkness was I realized I was missing something in my life. Um, and part of that missing thing was I had laid out in college this life plan, the capitalist dream of, you know, CTO, a high ranking official at a company, lots of employees, lots of money, you know, big house, cars, you know, all that stuff. And I achieved a lot of that. And I realized in my achieving of that, I was actually at probably the pinnacle of misery in my life. I was one of the most miserable times. And I had this weird, strange thing of like, something's missing. And somehow through that process, well, not somehow, God was really calling me and inviting me in to do faith for me. And that's when it started, was kind of out of that dark period. I started going to church for me. I started getting involved in things in church for me. And that's really started what I would call my, and I felt like I was always following the Lord, but I wasn't, I didn't have a deep personal relationship. So I kind of call it my second calling into him. Um, and so that's what really started it. Yeah. I love how you said that. It was an awakening. And uh, it sounded like you, you, uh, you know, something was missing while you really seemed to have it all. You had everything you, you had, a, you had the job, you had the, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the family, um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't really personal there. Yep. Okay. So you start mm -hmm. going, mm -hmm. did you end up having a personal moment of surrender to God or what was mm -hmm. that? What was that like? Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I don't have a moment, but which um, is okay, by the way. I, yeah, no, I, don't, I know. And I know yeah. not everybody has one, but I yeah, like to ask I, the question that way. Yes. Um, so part of, I, I'd say there are several things that happened. So part of this midlife awakening, um, my wife and I were on a date night and I had brought up the topic of showing the kids the world. They were at this time, I think they were eight and 10. And um, I, I'll never forget it because my wife, with, I think I've suggested we go to like Paris or France for two weeks. And she said, no, we should move to Africa for a year. And I, you know, I still, I still think the Holy Spirit possessed her mouth. And, but, um, so we started talking about that. And, um, after a year of planning, we moved our family, we rented our house, quit our jobs and moved our family to Uganda. And we lived there for a little, about 10 months. And throughout that 10 months, um, the Lord just did. I, I had this image of the Lord. It was hold, while he was holding me in me, me in his hands. Um, he was breaking so many things about what I knew and understood about myself and about him. And throughout that period, that's when I really felt this deep personal relationship with um, with my Lord. Wow. OK. That was a beautiful way to put it. He was holding you in his hands, but he was breaking you at the same time. Like, So what were some of the things that he was kind of taking out of you or breaking you as you were, mm. you were in yeah. Uganda? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing in this, this, I always thought this was so interesting. So I, we, we, we went to Uganda, we were living in community and we were surrounded by both mostly younger Americans. We were, we were in our forties and they were in their twenties, we'll say. Um, and so we were living in community, but we also had, were around Ugandans who were deeply faithful. I think Ugandans talk, taught me more about my faith than I taught them. Wow. Um, but, um, and they did a thing every, I think it was every Thursday called devotions in the morning. This was singing and dancing and praying and teaching and in the word. And I had never experienced such a thing like that. And I remember the first one I'm at and I'm in that, I like kind of have one eye kind of squinted open and I'm trying to, you know, not mess up. Not that you can mess up <laughs> devos, but I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to not mess up. And I remember the first thing the Lord said was, you must forgive your parents. I'm like, what? You called me, you moved me to Uganda to like, you know, serve Ugandans. And here you want me to spend time forgiving my parents. So um, I'll have to say we, we battled over that for about a few, a few months, but I ended up, I ended up forgiving my parents, which I didn't even know I had to do until I really thought about it. Um, and it was the first big step, but I always found it was such ironic that I got called to Uganda to work on forgiving my parents. Wow. I always find that very interesting. But. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. So you go over there and you're, you're thinking about your parents and trying to, and forgiving them. Mm -hmm. Is that, so what, I, I just want you to take us into that experience because that, I mean, yes. you can share whatever you want to share or don't, it's uh -huh. fine. Yeah. But, no. Like why, why was that a thing that God mm. was taking uh, or asking mm -hmm. you to do and how is that either right. keeping you from him and like all that? Yep. Yeah. So, so a couple of things, a quick, just a little bit about my parents, my parents and I had been through a really rough stint. They were part of the, the hard stuff that I mentioned that led to the, the awakening. And both of them turns out were alcoholics, um, different, different kind uh. of alcoholics. My dad was uh, two bottles of wine by three every day. At least oh. that's what it felt like to me. Did you know and that? My mom, I didn't, I, it took a while. I mean, I, it's interesting. I had all these kind of weird rules where I wouldn't call after three or four in the afternoon. Um, but I didn't know really why I was doing that. Um, and it wasn't, it really wasn't until later in his life. And so there was that struggle. And then my mom was, uh, she was, you know, she didn't drink and then she would like, you know, drink a ton. Um, in one day. And it was, it was just really a hard season. And then after 46 years of marriage, they ended up getting divorced, which was really hard to wrap my head around, um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, and so I well, think what you're, the well, Lord you, was really, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, your dad was a pastor, right? Yeah. So it was a pastor. Yeah. So that kind of um, makes so you, hey. you, you struggle with kind of like, did he believe what he was teaching and stuff? And did he live it? And all that, the hard, just a lot of hard things. And it was just a really, I, if for the people who have dealt with addiction, it's, I, you know, I, I think the symptoms of addiction and the drinking while hard are not the hardest thing. It's, it's the lies that are really, really hard. They, they break your heart. Um, and it just hurts to see someone you love struggling so badly um, with something. So I was really struggling um, with my relationship with my parents um, at, at this time. And the other thing I would say is um, I, I had had um, 
I, I have a I've termed it now. I've kind of done a little Bonhoeffer with this cheap grace, but I call it cheap forgiveness. Yeah. And I, I had an understanding of forgiveness that went something like my parents say they're sorry and I forgive them. That's how I understood forgiveness. And I would say in this season, the Lord was really teaching me that forgiveness had nothing to do with anything my parents would ever do. And it had everything to do with changing my heart and how I saw them. And so I had to do a lot of heart work. And I don't think I had done that much heart work in the past. And so this season, I was really just in this so strange. I'm in a foreign place, um, you know, taking pills so I don't get malaria and thinking about things. And, you know, electricity is hit or miss. And same with the internet and same with water. And I'm living in a community and everything's different. And here I am working on like deep heart change. Um, and it was what I so needed. I needed to let that go. Um, but it was definitely not what I expected. Yeah. So how did that feel to be doing those kinds of things or going through that sort of personal transformation mm. when that's not really what you went over there for? Yes. It, it felt, um, I, you know, I, I always use the word irony. It felt ironic to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and, and it was interesting because, um, at the same time, so, so a little bit more like my wife and I had kind of how we had organized our family just inherently was, I was kind of the, I'll just say the money-making arm of our family. And my wife was kind of the volunteer organization of our family. <laughs> That's how we had kind of set it up. Now, uh, for, now the structure of Graceful Cafe makes sense. <laughs> and so we had set it up kind of like that. And then, <laughs> um, and so my wife had done most of the volunteering. I had done some, but this Uganda was my wholehearted, like, I don't have a job. Like my whole definition in many ways was defined mm. about having a job. And now I don't have a job. I'm not making money. Um, I'm dependent on some donations we got and some um, people from Iceland who are renting our house and, you know, all that. And like, it was really, that was I think that was one of those things where the Lord was really breaking me, right? The, the whole lesson in trust, yeah. I have you, I was really being taught that. And, 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 and part of that was, I think, obedience when he said like, hey, you need to forgive your parents. And I said, no, you're crazy. And we continued an argument for, well, I at least argued. He kept telling me the same thing. But like we continued that for some period of time until I finally said, okay, I'll do it, right? And so I think he was really teaching me the trust um, and some obedience in that season and to get deeper into my heart. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting because at the same time, so going back to the, I was volunteering for the first time, but we didn't really have a set thing we were doing when we showed up in Uganda, which turned out to be a huge blessing. The organization had never had a family before. Our kids were going to a Uganda school. The organization had a school and I was just showing up. And to be honest, I was just reading my, I was just reading the Bible because it's the only book I had and I didn't have anything else to do. Meanwhile, my wife was somehow finding things to do and I was very bored. And so at the same time, I'm kind of arguing with the Lord about forgiveness. I'm arguing about him a little bit. Like, why did you bring us here? Like, I'm just sitting around reading a book. I could do that anywhere. Like why here? And I don't know what the moment was. But one day I feel like the scales fell from my eyes and I saw all the work I could be doing. And it, and then suddenly I was very busy, but it, it was this process that had to happen within me for me to see it. I don't 
how to expl- explain it any better than that. Yeah. It was there the whole time. I just couldn't see it. And so I was bored, but there was so much to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God was really, um, he was really digging into you. It sounds like. Like he was, yes. he was opening things up for you in ways that he apparently wanted to do. I loved his um, persistence and gentleness with you mm-hmm. in asking, yeah. just saying, "Okay, now you need to forgive your parents. You need to forgive your parents," yep. and yep. allowing you because I think this is an underrated attribute of God: his uh, persistence and allowing us to simply be where we are. He's not actually. Mm-hmm. You know, we always want to be further along than we are. And we have this, especially as Americans, we have this idea that we need to achieve our spiritual uh, being, right? Which is why my show is called Halfway There, by the way. We're, we're on a journey, I'm trying to say. Um, mm-hmm. But instead, he, the Lord is just inviting us into this conversation with him. And to, to like you said, obedience and to follow. Um, all of those things are really good. I, that's a really great example. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, yeah. Okay. So God's working on you in, in Uganda. Mm-hmm. What, uh, was, was there anything else big that kind of came out of that? And then you eventually came back and then kind of tell mm-hmm. us what happened then. Yes. Um, you know, there, there was just so there, there's nothing big. There was just so many moments of, of just understanding, um, kind of his presence. I'll, I'll give one example and, to give two more examples. The the other example that comes to mind just readily is um, I'm a I'm a planner by nature, so I like you know I already heard in, in somewhere in sophomore year of college I laid out a life plan, <laughs> um, and so I like to do plans, right? So that's yeah. how I like to control things as tasks. And so I remember I had started in this process. I I my journal you can you can see this moment where my journal totally changes from kind of this regurgitation of my day to what's going on in my head. And I love looking back at that point in my journal, but also one day in my journal, I decided to write my plans for the day. And then I ended my journal with a prayer, but God, today is your day. I will, I'll just go where you take me. And so with that in mind, I left. And so I go to do my first thing in my journal. It's total wreck. Yeah. As things, when you get into a, when you get into a foreign country, things don't work as you expect them to, uh, Ugandans have a different um, understanding of time than we do, <laughs> yeah. and um, and so which is beautiful and in its difference. Um, and so I get to my first thing, and and literally nothing else in my list can happen that day. And I'm just like, okay. And I remember that day I did so many different things. And when I got home and I was recapping the day in my journal, I couldn't believe the beauty that came out of that day. And it all became be- because I didn't have a list. And, and one, one of the things I think I learned in that moment that I often tell people is I think sometimes we plan God out of our schedule. We've actually give him no mo- room to move in what we have in a day because it's so full with other things that there's no place for God to move. And so I always try and leave a little space or sometimes even a lot of space to just let God move in my day. So that was one of the other big things that happened. And then the final thing you touched on was I, throughout this process, I feel like I had this transformation. And so we're about, Mm. we're about a month from coming home. Um, and I can kind of sense in my family that they're kind of getting ready. They're kind of getting done. They're just kind of ready to be back. And I don't want to leave. 
I'm, I remember being a Devo and I'm bawling, wow. like out of control, sobbing, like that crazy guy crying. And I, I didn't even know why. And as we're walking, my wife's like, is everything okay? I'm like, no, I don't, I can't go home. We need to stay here forever. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's like, no, that's not going to work. Um, and so just to quicken the story a little bit, what ended up happening was I just had to reframe what that was. And my, my great fear was that word going back. I didn't want to go back. Uh, I felt like I was a new Troy. And if I went back, I would become who I, who I was that I no longer was anymore. If that makes sense. Yes. You were like afraid. Gravity, gravity would pull me back. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the Lord just gave me so many, including a dream and other things. The Lord just spoke into that. And what, so I rephrased it and reframed it as I was continuing on. And as I thought about that, that was something I could get excited about. But going back was terrifying to me. So I think the final thing he taught me was to continue on and that I didn't have to go back. Yeah. Which is interesting because so I hear you saying you were you were afraid you had to become the person that you were before because you didn't know how to be the new person that God had made you in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you mentioned you had a dream. Is that something you want to tell us about? Because I know people. I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced that God still Mm. works in these ways, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know. So if it was formational, I'd love. Uh For people okay. just to hear the story in order to go uh-huh. at least be aware and kind of listening, uh-huh. you know? Okay. Um, yeah, this is great. I, I think I'm meant to tell this. I have not told this very much. Um, so the dream is I'm I'm standing on a dock, a big, very big wood dock, and there's boats in the background, which is really interesting because we weren't on the water in Uganda or anything, nor have I. I did. Anyways, um, and so I'm on this dock, and this this person approaches me that has like all the mentors in my life are rolled up into this one person. And I, I think to this day it was Jesus, but, <laughs> um, and, and this person starts talking to me and, and I don't really remember the conversation, but I remember in the point of having this great conversation, I reach into my pocket and there's, there's something in it, like really big, bigger than keys and stuff. And so I reach in my pocket and I pull out, and I look at it, and and for some reason I know it's it's, it's an, a huge, like huge uncut diamond. And I'm looking at this, and um, and and I look to, I'm just going to use the word Jesus, and I say, how much is this worth? And at, for whatever reason, he speaks very loudly, and he says it's it's priceless, it's invaluable, and he says it loudly, and at that moment. I feel like everyone on this crowded dock is looking at me and coveting and wanting to steal my diamond. Mm. And um, that was the dream. And so I woke up and I was like kind of excited because that seemed like a pretty, that was a pretty impactful dream to me. And I'm, I'm telling, we're just, we're kind of gathering for breakfast. I'm telling some people in the community room, like what had happened. And I'm like, what do you think it means? And I remember one of the guys looks at me. He's like, you totally know what that means. And I'm like, I do. And he's like, yes. And he didn't answer the question. And I thought about it. And it was what I was saying. It was that to me, that uncut diamond was what my faith had become. And part of my fear of going back was that people would somehow take that from me, but they couldn't, but recognizing they could never take it from me um, was part of 
the dream and at least my, the meaning that I have from the dream. Yes. Wow. So they could not take away the value that God had given you. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Was that a reassuring? Yes. That was I, that was a pretty pivotal dream on giving me the return from Uganda. I'll say it that way. Yeah, right. It kind of, <laughs> it convinced you it sounds like that you could go, okay, yes, we, we that can I go, could home. go and that I had this thing of value but that it couldn't be taken from me. I could only give it, I think was part of it. Wow. Like I could only give it away. So if if I went back it was only because I gave up things that were important to me versus them being stolen, which I don't think I understood. Yeah. But Jesus is faithful to tell you that. Yep. Oh man. How cool. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great story. Yeah. I love that one. Um so you come back and mm-hmm. I I don't know how long it was before you guys started Graceful, but fill that in for us. Yeah, so we got back in 2003. That was 2013. And so my wife is now thinking part of one of her things in Uganda was that she wrote in her journal. Well, she doesn't journal that often, but she wrote that she was meant to open a restaurant. And so she comes back and she's, you know, she was, she taught business at high school and she was a CPA. So she does what any business person would do. She starts laying out a business plan. So she starts creating that. I'm supporting her. I don't, I actually, I don't know that it's feeling that serious to me still. Um, and then she, then one day she, she tells me that she thinks she should get a job in the restaurant industry. So she works at this local, um, breakfast place called snooze here in town. Oh yeah. Um, and she's a hostess and there she is working there for about a year and continue work on our business plan. And I don't time kind of a, you know, it's tricky sometimes, but at one point she, she tells me at dinner or something, Hey, I think we should start looking for properties. And that's when it hit me that we were serious <laughs> about this restaurant thing. Um, and so that I better start kind of getting um, on board with that. And so, yeah, we, we started looking for properties um, and we found this cute little 1912 house in this historic downtown Littleton. And Heather said, this is the place. Um, and the Lord was faithful in that. It, it looked like it was going to fall through many times, um, but it came through and I think we bought the place in 2015 and then we started remodeling it because it was formerly a tea shop. And so we started remodeling it to open. It was, you know, it was a 1912 house. It had two, had really like three rooms and we wanted to make it one big community room. So we we removed walls and did all that stuff. And then we got ready to open in May of 2016. Wow. And then how does that work? Because I I think people come and volunteer there, right? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, I, yeah. Great, great question. So we have, we have, so we have paid staff. So we have a barista every day. We have a, a paid chef. Um, and someday my wife will, her position will pull some pay. We're working to that. Um, and then we have six volunteers a day that do food prep. Um, they run the dishes and they also, um, they run and get the dishes and bring the food out to people. And then there's someone that washes dishes. So we have like through two and a half to three hour shifts um, two times a day. Um, and so we have this beautiful volunteer community that steps into what we do every day, um, and serves people, you know, a plate of, of good feel of good food. We've, one of our core values is to keep it simple and to limit waste. So we have a very small menu. So for breakfast, we have three things and for lunch, we have four things. Um, and we just try and keep it very simple, um, and serve those things really well. 
uh, make them fresh every day and just love people with really good food. Mm -hmm. Which I love that. It's actually sometimes the best places are the ones that have a simple menu, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you just know what you can get. And yep. um, I love that. So I will, uh, I will attest that the burritos are really great. And yesterday yes. I had the traditional and it was really good too. <laughs> so yes. um, mm -hmm. you, you really can't, can't go wrong. It's, mm -hmm. it's delicious. Okay. So what um, can we talk about the way that uh, it, you know, people can come and whether you can mm -hmm. pay or not, you know, that's right. that's thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it gets a little interesting, right? Cause you have a clientele yes. that, that mm -hmm. isn't right. traditional um, and they, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for that probably. Yes. So t yes. talk to us about that. And uh -huh. cause I love the way that you're ministering to them and just by mm -hmm. being cre and creating space for them. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, so many stories, but let me just, I'll start with some numbers. Just give everyone a perspective. Right. So we serve, we serve between a hundred and 120 meals a day, about 50 to 60 of those are what we call grace in action. That's our program where you don't have to pay meals. So about half of the clientele, anytime you come into a restaurant are either experiencing homelessness, living out of the car, surfing couches, or some other way of really just trying to, to make it work. Um, and I think one of the things that's really, I, I think we sit in this interesting space. You know, we're not a coffee shop. Because um, we serve food, we're not a soup kitchen, but we're yet not a regular cafe. Right. We sit in these in-between space, and we just try and have a full representation of the community we live in. So, regard. So, if you take the paying option off the table, we try and represent who all is in our community, and just create this welcoming space where we want to know your name, and we want you to know your story, and we want to know we want you to know our story. And we just try and invest in people that way. Um, and so just trying to create that community space, invite people through volunteering or just coming to have a meal with us and just maybe having a conversation with someone they wouldn't often meet. Yeah. Um, and creating this really safe – safety is a big word we use a lot. Having this safe environment. I mean it's, I won't say it's not challenging. Right. But it, it is safe. Well, I was like, going to – Safety is very important to us, but it is, it is a challenging because – you will meet people that you wouldn't normally associate with, um, especially in if you're in the middle class. You wouldn't <laughs> right. normally associate with these people, but there's something so beautiful um, in their story and who they are, and in what they've been through um, and what they're still going through, um, and just the understanding of their their experience. I think is so educational and something we need to hear in, in our society today. Yeah. But the, some, some of the people who come are homeless, right? And they're, or they're yes. addicts and you can tell, uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and yep. they, they've got a story, but mm -hmm. anyway, I like the way that you create a safe space. I, I think they're all, they're all, everybody's very respectful. It is this mm -hmm. very interesting, um, community of people to be like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm part of this, you know, I'm part of, yep. by coming here and supporting, I'm part of, um, ministering in the way that you guys do, mm -hmm. which I love. Right. So right. you mentioned challenges and I wanted to mm -hmm. see like, so tell us yes. what some of the challenges are mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, cause people listen to this show all over the world. And so maybe they're somewhere yeah. else, you know, other places, mm -hmm. England or Australia mm -hmm. or uh, Africa themselves. Uh -huh. 
Yep. What what could they learn from your experience about how to deal with challenging uh, mm. people or you know creating mm-hmm. that space? Yeah, I mean, lots to talk about there. I think um, I think where I'd start with is names. Um, I think like when I read the Bible now and I see when I see Jesus change someone's name or call them something else or God change someone's name and really important people's names, they, they change. I, I think that reminds us how important it is to not only he, to hear your name said, but also to know someone's name. And I've heard that over and over from our guests, especially the ones experiencing um, homelessness, that they live in a world. They'll say something like this. I live in a world where no one cares that I exist and I come in here and you want to know my name. Wow. And, and that might be the first time that someone has really tried to interact with them and know their name. And so I think we can't underestimate the power of knowing someone's name. So the other thing I think uh, that I would, would, would say is I mentioned that word safety. Um, safety and comfort are not the same thing to me. <laughs> right. Um, safety means that you feel safe in our space, and that is very important to us. So we, we, we have a thing called breaks that we take with people when they make it, people not feel safe in our space. And we will talk to them and say, hey, we need to take a break, and we'll come up with some time based on whatever happened. And just and try and speak to them like, hey, people didn't feel safe when you acted that way. And so we'll talk about that. And um, to a person, we've never had anyone that doesn't observe and understand they may not understand why they're on break, but they observe it and they respect it. And I think that's part of it's, it's you have to give to receive, I think. Yeah. And part of us giving is we want to know their name and we, we try to let them know that we really want to know who they are and we really value them. But they also have to be very respectful of what of our community because we want people to feel that from everyone. Yeah. And so I think what I would say dealing with challenges is um you know, we're going through, you know, going through other challenges, um, personal ones and not, but like some level of just trying to enter into the hard um, rather than avoiding it, but enter into it um, and just trying to be respectful and loving, but also say like, hey, like you can't, you can't act this way. Right. And I'm not saying to be mean, I'm just saying like, it doesn't make people feel safe when you do this or it's disrespectful or this is why we want to do this and create this community. And I, and I think we all like, I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about living in community until I lived in it. And so I didn't, I had lost the concept of community until I was immersed in it. And so trying to, I think that's one of the things we try and teach people is how do we all be together? And what, what I would say is we come from different places. We come from what I would say society rules which if you look at society rules, there's a lot about, I think in our society, there's a lot of, especially American society, like do it on yourself, fix it yourself, you know, get well by yourself. There's this like individualistic kind of value we have. And then if you look at street rules, street rules are respect is number one, never back down all this. And neither, neither are community living rules, not neither society rules that we live in kind of, or, street rules. And so teaching people to come together with a new set of rules is what we spend a lot of time entering into and trying to do. Wow. Okay. That's really profound and powerful. I love the way you frame it too as safety, because I think everybody understands that, 
right? Mm-hmm. There's nobody who wants to feel unsafe. Right. And so when you frame something in around safety, it's easy to go, okay, I, yeah, I don't want to make people feel that way. Everybody, right. everybody is that way. Um, mm-hmm. But then to also put that safety is a value of our community and that's, mm-hmm. then we're all together. And so nobody's trying to get more than the other person or whatever, however that works, you know, um, mm-hmm. we're all welcome here. Wow. That is just such a beautiful picture. I love it. Um, man, I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about, Trey, yes. about your story. I know there is, and maybe we can do mm-hmm. a follow-up sometime. Um, yep. but I want to just encourage you friends. If you, um, if you have a place, uh, like graceful cafe near you, uh, go volunteer or, uh, show up and give, uh, go down have a meal and meet some people because it really is, uh, something that will change your life. And then, um, if you're in Littleton, you're in, or you're in Denver, cause I know a lot of us are, um, come on down and, and check it out. You just may find me there. I, I, uh, do a lot of my coffee meetings there in the morning now. So it's, uh, it would be really fun to do that. Um, I've got links to your website. So if people want to find out more, if they want to, uh, you know, give or talk to you, they can just go to the show notes at halfway there podcast.com or your website is I got right here, gracefulcafe.com. So people can find that as well. Troy, is there anything you want to leave us with? I always say I need buckets of patience and truckfuls of trust. Mm. And that is just trying to trust in what the Lord has for each of us um, and seeing what I would say, one of the things I've learned in all these conversations I've gotten to have with so many different community people from people experiencing homelessness, like I said, living in their cars to middle-class and upper-class folks. The more conversations I have, the more I realize we all experience very similar things. And, and truly I believe that God has created each one of us in our image, and he's given us each a special task or gift to do and share with this world. And I would just so encourage each person to find whatever that is. Maybe it's graceful, probably isn't, but there is something you're called to do to make this world a much better place. And I would just encourage you to go into that, try and seek it, find it, walk through the really hard stuff and see see where it takes you because I, I guarantee you it will be totally different and changed and it will be really, really good. Wow, that is so true. Every time someone embraces who God's made them to be and acts out in it, very good things happen. The world has changed for the better and uh, it's a travesty that so many of us allow our circumstances to, to not do that. I think God uh, is calling us to do it. So friends, maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a little thought in the back of your mind um, that you're like, maybe I should pay attention to that. Do it. And uh, let's see let's see what God does. And let us know. So you can hit up Troy at GracefulCafe.com or me at HalfwayTherePodcast.com. I would love to hear uh, how God is moving you. Troy, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Happy to be here. My pleasure.